The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. We are in week two of our series at the moment called Imago Day, uh, where we are looking at some of the more contentious issues of our day, where the wonderful truth of uh, the fact that we were made in the image of God is either being eroded, disintegrated, denied sometimes, even rejected. Last week we looked at homosexuality and same-sex relationships, and today we're talking about transgenderism, which is perhaps uh, one of the most difficult topics to navigate in our day and age, and for a variety of different reasons, which, which I'll get into soon. I was saying to the volunteers this morning, I uh, was getting a coffee last Sunday morning, and the barista asked me, <clears throat> what are you preaching on today, Jimmy? And I said, um, homosexuality. And he was like, oh, cool. Well, good luck with that one. Um, <laughs> and then I saw him this morning, and he said, what are you preaching on today, Jimmy? <laughs> and I said, transgenderism. And he said, gosh, you guys are having fun at your church, aren't you? Um, this is a tough topic. It really, it's, it's tricky. It's delicate. Um, and what we want to do today is, and I, I don't mean to jest. I don't mean to make jokes about this. This is a serious topic. What, what we want to do today is understand as much as we can about this issue in the short amount of time that we have. We want to consider what the Bible has to say about this. And then we want to finish with some practical considerations of, of what it looks like to engage with this particular issue and people who uh, call themselves transgender, people who struggle with gender dysphoria. Uh, and we're going to look at some practical, practical considerations moving forward. Um, just so you know, this is not going to be my shortest sermon ever. Just let you know. Um, if you hear your kids screaming out during creation, you can totally go and rescue them. If you need to go at, towards the end, I, I understand. I want to say straight up, though, that uh, there is so much more that needs to be said here than what I have time for this morning. And so uh, there's, there's, some, there's some things that I've edited out of this because other things I believe need to be said. So I won't get to say everything. But there are some really great books uh, available on, on this topic and a whole lot of other topics that we've got a bunch of them for sale at the back there. Um, you can also grab them from Kurong or online or wherever. Um, I'm not making any claim to be an expert on this particular topic. Um, I've done as much research as I think I've been able to, uh, but my understanding on this issue is still growing. And like last week, I want to remind us again that what we're talking about are issues that are, that are not divorced from real people facing really hard circumstances. This is about as personal as it gets for some people, and so I want to speak with kindness and gentleness and confidence. I want to speak with all the gentleness and the kindness and the confidence that I see demonstrated in our Saviour, Jesus. If you're here this morning and you have experienced or are experiencing some form of dissonance between um, who you are on the outside and what you feel you are on the inside, it's some kind of experience of gender dysphoria, I'm honestly so honoured that you would come to church today to give us your time. I don't make any claim to know the nuances and the intricacies of what you face. And if you'll be so generous, I would love it if after you've listened to me this morning that we could spend some time and I could hear more about your story. Let's pray. 
Lord, how precious your thoughts are to us. How vast their sum is. If we were to count up all of your thoughts, Lord, all of your word, it, it would outnumber the grains of sand. Lord, we thank you that we can claim because of what you've done for us on the cross by sending your son to die for us on the cross. We can claim that we can know you. We can hear your thoughts. We can, through your word, Lord, we can, we can be guided by you, by your spirit, as we open up your word. So, Lord, we ask you to guide us once again this morning. We ask, Lord, for your thoughts to inhabit our own. Father, I ask for your help this morning. That as I speak, Lord, that you would uh, carry my words, Father. Lord Jesus, where if I, have, if I misspeak at all this morning, Lord, I ask God that by your Spirit, you would, uh, that, that those, those words, those thoughts would be quickly forgotten, Lord. But I ask God that more than anything, your word would remain in our hearts. We thank you, Father, that we have been fearfully and wonderfully made. That we have been knitted together in our mother's wombs by you, Lord. We thank you and praise you, Jesus, for these wonderful truths. Let us cling to them this morning. Amen. We're talking um, today about transgenderism. And I'm using that, that term, that label transgenderism, uh, in the way that it is commonly, commonly used in this dialogue to sum up, or as an umbrella term, to refer to anyone who experiences gender outside of the binary norms of male and female. That being said, transgenderism is experienced in a variety of different ways by different people, and the list of labels that people might use to describe how they feel or what's going on for them is really quite long. If you want a comprehensive summary of those terms, I refer, to you, refer you to Preston Sprinkle's book, Embodied, or Mark Yarhouse's book, which I'm not sure if we've got a copy there anymore, um, uh, Understanding, Trends, Understanding Gender Dysphoria. Um, the clinical diagnostic terminology that is often used for people experiencing this is gender dysphoria, which is a mental illness in which a person experiences dissonance between their biological sex, their, their physical bodies, and what they feel about their gender in their thoughts and their desires and uh, in the general culture, what they feel to be on the inside. Generally speaking, people can experience the distress, this distress on a spectrum from mild to extreme, and it can cause deep distress, deep anxiety and pain for those who are experiencing it. What we're talking about today is a very complex issue for people personally, and it is also a very contentious issue that is being debated publicly. On a personal level, it's very complex for people. On a public level, it's incredibly contentious. And that makes this a really delicate issue to talk about. There are a number of things that make it really complex for people on a deeply personal level. And I just want to talk through a few things, a few, some statistics that, we've, that I've managed to find over the last few weeks. Firstly, uh, the thing that make, things that make it complex for people is that the suicide attempts for people who are transgender is more than just about any other demographic. 
It's somewhere between 32 to 50% of people who experience transgenderism have made an attempt on their lives in first world countries. Secondly, while it's hotly debated, there is nowhere near a consensus on the causes of gender dysphoria. Uh, there is plenty of research being done on it, but it is still only very recent and it is constantly being uh, revised and updated. Thirdly, gender dysphoria can be experienced in a number of different ways by a number of different people. Mark Yarhouse, who is a Christian psychologist and has done extensive study on the treatment and, uh, and um, on treatment for, with people with, trans, with um, gender dysphoria, has said quite helpfully, he says, if you've met one transgender person, you've met one transgender person. It's not the same experience for every single person. It is wildly different, massively different for different people. Fourth thing that makes it complex, there is somewhat of a social contagion surrounding this issue, both in celebrity and in popular culture. This has meant that a certain sort of social credit is given to a person who comes out as trans. And this, has, uh, this is evidenced by the spike of the number of cases that are happening at the moment. So in 2012, for the National Health Service in the UK, there were around 250 cases of adolescents claiming to experience some sort of transgenderism in the UK. Ten years later, in 2021, that number was around 5,000. So there's been a massive spike in cases of of people uh, claiming to be transgender. The fifth thing is that the number of uh, professional diagnoses of gender dysphoria are somewhere between... Uh, 1 in 10,000 to 1 in 13,000 for males, and 1 in 20,000 to 1 in 34,000 for females. That means people who uh, have gender dysphoria who have been diagnosed by a professional, an, a, an objective diagnosis by a psychologist or psychiatrist, it is uh, 1 in 10,000 to 13,000 for males, 1 in 20,000 to 34,000 for females. Compare that, though, to more subjective diagnoses, such as when someone identifies as transgender along a broad continuum. They, kind of, they, they don't get a professional diagnosis, they just come out as trans. And that suggests that there is as many as 1 in 215 to 1 in 300 people who identify themselves as transgender. Basically, that means that uh, out of the vast majority of people who, are, who say that they are transgender, transgender, who come out as transgender, only a very small number of them have been professionally diagnosed with gender dysphoria. Now, those stats are obviously uh, contentious. Those stats are obviously... Um, people would debate that, but that is, um, that's from Mark Yarhouse's research in that. And this, but this is the background for those that some people have labelled as trans-trenders, people who identify as transgender but don't have a professional and objective diagnosis of their gender dysphoria. And as you can imagine, this is causing quite a rift within the transgender community. It has been hotly debated. Adding to the complexity of this is the fact that gender dysphoria is not often experienced by the same person in the same way over a continued period of time. Yahoo states that most children who meet criteria for gender dysphoria do not continue to meet criteria as they grow up and enter adolescence. The current research is that around 80 to 90% of adolescents who experience gender dysphoria simply grow out of it by the time they reach adulthood. Suffice to say, this is a deeply complex personal issue. We need to take it seriously and not just flatten it out 
as, it's, as if it's something very simple and straightforward. It's absolutely not. But it's not just a personally complex, a complex issue, it's also a publicly contentious issue. And it's for this reason that this topic is being discussed today. It's very contentious. It's no secret that there is a strong tidal wave of support to affirm the new gender identities and fluidities of those experiencing it. This is, uh, this is a result in what we might call a gender-obsessed ideology that is finding its way into every nook and cranny in our culture. And there are some really concerning things about this ideology. Firstly, the huge spike in cases suggests that this gender ideology provides an incredibly powerful narrative for people with deep questions about identity. Now, some people have suggested that the huge spike is attributed to the fact that well, these cases have always been there. It's just now, that now people feel safe to actually come out and say that they are experiencing this. However, the data, the, the numbers don't actually flow in that direction. Um, and we can talk a, bit, a little bit about that afterwards if you want to know why, but there's, um, researchers are saying, no, that's, that doesn't actually seem to be the case. Adding to this contention is the denial of this as a mental health issue. One study in the US found that around 63% of young people identifying as trans had prior diagnoses of mental health disorders and, uh, and around 48% had experienced some kind of traumatic or stressful event prior to their dysphoria. Furthermore, there has been a rapid embrace of biological and anatomical treatments by doctors rather than treating the mind. They've gone to surgeries, they've gone to um, hormone, hormone therapy instead of, going, instead of trying to treat the mind. In that same study I just mentioned, it was found that only 28% of clinicians who treated those teenagers explored issues of prior mental health, previous trauma, or, explore, or, 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 sorry, um, or explored alternative causes for gender dysphoria. Yahouse writes that the professional trend in treatment encourages exploration of non-birth sex expression, often meaning hormonal treatment and surgery. The current contentious climate of this issue has also seen the development of what is now known as rapid onset gender dysphoria in young people where a young person can experience symptoms of gender dysphoria in a relatively short period of time. There's not a great deal of research on this. This is a highly contentious part of this topic. But uh, some of the stories that are coming out from uh, young people who have transitioned and then detransitioned later are saying that um, social media had a massive uh, impact on their decision to transition. And adding to that contention is the radical and reckless adoption of this gender ideology into places such as schools. Now, I'm not, sh I'm not aware that any sanctioned teaching of this is happening within um, Queensland curriculum, but there are outside groups who have adopted this ideology and are teaching it in Queensland schools as part of uh, health and wellness classes. There are also stories here on the Sunshine Coast where parents have been effectively sidelined by schools while physical treatments have been advanced for their children. This contention has given rise to what we now know as the culture wars, where for many people, nothing short of a fierce pushback has been felt as being necessary. Unfortunately, within these culture wars, this has given rise to some rather unhelpful voices that demean and deride people with mental health disorders without giving them much hope of recovery or a future with their condition. 
Therefore, people who struggle with gender dysphoria are often driven into the welcoming arms of an unhealthy ideology that doesn't actually seem to help. The accuracy of the data for the effectiveness of physical treatments for the psychological issue is really difficult to discern. Some studies suggest that up to 99.7% of people who undergo hormone therapy or sex reassignment surgery are satisfied with the result. However, there is serious doubt on those figures um, by other researchers who cite massive problems with that information. The most long-term and thorough studies suggest a long-term increase in suicide attempts and psychiatric inpatient care for transsexuals after surgery. Paul McHugh, who for the last 40 years has been the University Distinguished Service Professor of Psychiatry at Johns Hopkins Medical School and spent 26 years uh, as, as a psychiatrist-in-chief of the Johns Hopkins Hospital. And Johns Hopkins Hospital um, was the first hospital, I believe, in the States to pioneer sex reassignment surgery. Um, he states that transgendered men do not become women nor do transgendered women become men, or become feminized men or masculinized women, counterfeits or impersonators of the sex with, with which they identify. In that lies their problematic future. That's the head of psychiatry at one of the most famous gender reassignment uh, hospitals. That, that hospital now no longer provides that surgery. The rapid popularisation, the, the tidal wave of affirmation and the sometimes unhelpful pushback has left a lot of casualties in its wake, with people who struggle with gender dysphoria often being treated like political footballs in the hands of those looking to push their own agenda and they don't end up getting the help that they need. So we're actually talking about two separate issues, well, two connected issues here, two different issues. And we need to talk, to talk about them separately from one another. On the one hand, we're talking about people who sincerely struggle with a really horrible and difficult psychological disorder. And I don't want to flatten that out. I don't want to disregard it. These people need evidence-based care from clinicians who will treat them holistically as well as really good community support. On the other hand, we're also talking about a culture that seems to be conducting a massive social experiment without a great deal of consideration of those who will have to pay the highest cost. And it's that gender-obsessed ideology that we must repudiate. And I, what I want to do now is, is look at that powerful narrative, look at that gender-obsessed ideology that has been promoted uh, in our culture at the moment. One of the one of the traits of this ideology is the notion that what we feel on the inside is who we really are and it has the moral authority to, de to determine all truth for us and our bodies have little to nothing to say about who we really are. Now, this is, uh, only a, this is um, not really universal thought. It's only been developed in the last couple hundred years and it's only really developed in Western nations. When I was in Nepal at the beginning of the year, uh, one of the pastors there asked me about this issue because he'd heard about it, and I explained some of it to him, and he was absolutely gob gobsmacked. And I said, have you ever experienced, is there anybody, do you know of this in Nepal? And he said, we've never even heard of it, it's not even on the radar. So it's definitely a, a, a thing that's happening in Western nations. And this ideology relies heavily on postmodern assumptions about where truth resides. 
As we looked at last week, the seeds of this postmodern thought uh, were planted by the German, German 18th century philosopher Immanuel Kant, who, building on the works of René Descartes, located the central point of human identity in our thoughts, in our feelings, and in our desires, in our inner selves. What we feel on the inside, who we are on the inside, that's who we really are. He suggested that truth comes from within, and anything that tells you otherwise, anything that uh, rejects the truth that you feel within, is, is morally reprehensible and should be rejected. And this seed germinated in philosophy in the subsequent years, and it gradually grew out into the arts and into the social con conscience, and it slowly developed in Western nations for the most part, until now we hear statements like, living out our truth, and we regard that as something as being totally normal, even though that sentence itself is massively contradictory. And you only have to take a quick scan of all of our popular movies and songs and media to see this narrative being accepted. Search deep within and discover your true self and then pursue that with everything that you have, regardless of the obstacles that are in your way, because at the end of that road, you'll find true happiness. That's the narrative that's being pushed. To give you an example of this, I want to take the movie Moana as an example. Not as an example of gender ideology so much, because it's not really dealing with that at all, but as an example of how our society believes that the heart must be obeyed above everything else. And if you really like the movie Moana, I apologize for what I'm about to say about it. <laughs> Unlike Western societies, by the way, I really like the movie Moana as, as well, I, until I learned this and... Yeah. Um, unlike Western societies, which finds meaning and value from the internal discovery of self, Moana is from a traditional Polynesian culture, which finds meaning and purpose uh, uh, not so much for the individual within the family, not within the self. But Moana has this voice inside that tells her to pursue her own dreams and pursue her heart's desires. She's torn, but after some encouragement, uh, by her grandmother, Moana abandons her family at their time of need and goes on a quest to discover who she really is. Now, fortunately for her family, and conveniently for the plot of the movie, the quest to discover her true self and purpose in life coincides and matches with the discovery of the fix for her family's problems. Moana, then, is able to both affirm her heart's desires as well as managing to save the day. The moral is this, it's not only good for the individual, but it's good for the whole society if we become like Moana and follow the voice inside rather than the realities of the world around us. Ironically, this movie, which claims to celebrate Polynesian culture, has a not-so-subtle subtext. If Polynesian cultures would just think a bit more like Western people, less about the family and more about the individual, then their problems will likely go away. This is the climate that we live in, and it's everywhere. Self-discovery is the gospel of our day. Salvation lies in discovering who you, really were, who you really are, and heresy is when you're prevented from pursuing your dreams, and heaven is when everything on the outside is shaped and molded according to what we feel on the inside. And the final frontier for this sort of thinking is our bodies. It makes sense that this is how a lot of people now view their bodies, considering the cultural climate that we grow up in. Increasingly, 
We're seen, our bodies, the culture is seen, our bodies are treated as if uh, they have nothing moral or authoritative to say. Somewhat ironically, in a world where so much emphasis is given to body image and physical health, the, pre- the prevailing message has become that our bodies are nothing. They are simply lumps of matter which makes them disposable and irrelevant. We're told that our bodies are simply vehicles for our true selves to inhabit. Therefore, if there is a problem with the mind, it is the body that must change. And therein lies one of the most alarming aspects of all of this. Our feelings, desires and priorities can and do change with time, experience and maturity. But our bodies are not so easily modified. And any attempts to change our biological sex to come in line with our feelings of gender are incredibly invasive and more often than not, they are irreversible. Ultimately, the story that transgender ideology presents is a false one. It makes promises that it can't keep, and it can lead to radical and irreversible physical harm. Ultimately, it fragments the self into multiple pieces, breaking us apart. It is horribly reductionistic and will lead to a total dehumanization of humanity. But the Bible tells us a much better story about ourselves, a much better story about humanity. When we open our Bibles, we find that God has a much brighter, more holistic, and overall a better story to tell about what makes us human, and it includes our bodies. Where our world says that our bodies are nothing important, the Bible does the opposite, treating our bodies with great care and great dignity. And we get this right from the very beginning of our Bibles. And we're going to go back there again this morning, where we went last week to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 27. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. There are a few observations that I think we can make from this text and from some of the texts that, text that come away from that that are incredibly important about this. Firstly, mankind is absolutely unique in God's created order. Mankind is not just another thing. Mankind is unique. We looked at this a little bit last week, that mankind is the only created thing that is said to be created in God's image. We were created to image him, to reflect something of his glory, of God's glory, back to him and to the rest of creation. This is further emphasizing the fact that the way that mankind was made was somewhat different to the rest of creation. Previously, everything else was created according to God's word when he said, let there be let the earth form, all these kinds of things, let the earth produce. But when it comes to making mankind, a different creation experience occurs. Instead of God saying, let there be, he says, let us make. There is an intentionality, a personal involvement in the making of mankind that makes us stand out uniquely amongst the rest of creation. Mankind is no accident. God deliberately made man in a special way and with a special purpose to image him, and that includes our bodies. 
This raises the stakes massively, and it's why we've called this series the uh, Imago Day. There is a treasuredness about humanity that we must not mess with. To play fast and loose with fellow image bearers and to denigrate our bodies is a serious rejection of this breathtaking truth. We dare not damage something that was created by God himself to bring himself glory. Secondly, and quite clearly, God created mankind in his image as a binary pair, male and female. He did not create gender as a spectrum to find yourself on, but as equal, opposite, and complementary realities. And this fits perfectly within the rhythm of the creation story. God makes other pairs of, of, of complementary things that are made to work together. He makes heaven and earth, the sun and the moon, light and darkness, sea and land, and male and female are the climax of it all. The third thing that we can observe is that this sexual differentiation is what God calls very good. If you look down to verse 31, something different occurs, again related to the unique creation of mankind. At the, end of the previous, at the end of each of the previous five days of creation, God stood back and took an appraisal of that day's work. And for each day, he called it good. But if you look at verse 31, at the end of the sixth day, he says, God saw that all that he made, and it was very good indeed. Now, someone might say, yeah, well, Genesis 1 is simply talking about biological sex. Male, male and female, that, that's all it is. But to that we need to respond by saying, well, actually, you need to go further and look in Genesis 2 as well. And this is the fourth thing that I want to note from our passage. In Genesis 1, the adjectives male and female are used, which at their most basic level do seem to be referring to biological sex. But then in Genesis 2, the adjectives male, adjectives male and female give way to the nouns man and woman. The male is spoken of as a man when... When he becomes married, he is referred to as a husband and then as a father when he sires children. The female is likewise is spoken of as a woman, a wife when she marries and a mother when she gives birth. This is simply to say that biological sex and gender are not two distinct realities that can be separated or thought of separately from one another. And any rejection of this is ultimately a rejection of God. The fifth observation about this text is that, Jesus, uh, that Jesus, is that Jesus quotes it in Matthew 19. When questioned about the issue of divorce, Jesus quoted this, this verse, Genesis 1.27. Haven't you read, he replied, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female. This tells us that, that the truth of Genesis 1 and 2 was still relevant for Jesus and is still relevant for us today. And this is further supported by in other passages where a blurring of the line between sexes or a blending of the norms of the sexes is condemned, such as Deuteronomy 22.5 and 1 Corinthians 6 and 11. The Bible offers a far more holistic view of what it means to be male and female. It doesn't denigrate the body or leave the body out, but instead it elevates the body as having just as much to say about our identity as our minds. The Bible look, takes our bodies and says, no, you were created in God's image purposely, significantly. It wasn't an accident at all. But there is more to say about how the Bible then treats those who feel like it is not as straightforward as that. 
Following on from where, Genesis, where Jesus quoted Genesis 1 and 2 in Matthew 19, if you keep reading down, he immediately begins talking about eunuchs. He says in verse 12, For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. A eunuch was someone who typically had been castrated to serve in a special role normally in the service of someone of royalty. Jesus says that, they, that, they, that some people have been made that way by others, and he also says that there have been some who have been born that way. Now, it's hard to know exactly what Jesus means by that, but at the very least, Jesus, Jesus is talking about people who, from his earliest birth, do not experience the normal path of gender and sexuality. You see, the Bible is very honest to those who don't experience this binary reality in their own bodies. And it points us to Jesus as our example of how he treated the individuals who existed outside of moral and social norms, whose experience of life was not as straightforward as it was for most other people. Jesus describes himself as being gentle and humble in heart. And we must take, his cue, take our cues from him too. God has made us as beings who can empathize with one another. Listed in the fruit of the Spirit is gentleness and kindness, and we are called to bear one another's burdens. The reality is that we live in a fallen world where because of the curse of sin, we are born into a created world that has become fractured by abnormality, sickness, Conflict, strife, disease, and every other ailment and frustration in our lives. The complexity that some people experience in their bodies means that they don't line up with the binary pairings of male and female in their their bodies, in their hearts, in how they feel. The Bible teaches us that this is a result of the curse of sin under which all of mankind was born. The Australian theologian Rob Smith concludes, Scripture resists diluting the sex-gender binary, even though some do not neatly fit into it. You see, the better picture that the Bible tells us, the Bible offers us of our humanity, is a picture that is honest about our frailty and honest about our brokenness. It doesn't pretend that there isn't something wrong. But it also gives us a bright and fantastic future by pointing us to the one who came in a body and died to redeem us all from sin. Though our bodies experience the curse of sin, all of us do in various ways, in all sorts of different ways, Jesus is the one who has shouldered that burden and saved us from our sin. And those who trust in him are promised an eternal future in perfect bodies where peace Happiness, joy, and satisfaction will be experienced forever in the presence of Jesus. That's what's on offer for everybody who comes to trust in Jesus. If you're here and you struggle with some form of dissonance between how you feel on the inside and how God created your body, you need to hear this. It is not because of some fault of your own that you feel that way. It is not that you have sinned in a particular way and that that this has happened. And I'm talking about this for people who this is an unwanted desire. This is an unfortunate consequence of the fall of mankind and the result of being born under the curse of sin. Here's the thing. 
at the apex of this better story that the Bible tells us is the God who created you, who loves you. He knows what is best for you, and he sent his son to rescue you from the curse of sin. And the future that he has planned for you is far better than anything else than you and I could ever imagine or hope. This doesn't mean that we will experience complete or even satisfying answers to the resolution or resolutions to the problems that we face in this life. For all of us who follow Jesus, our unique calling is to suffer like him. And that suffering will be different for different people. But the Bible doesn't treat suffering as the dead-end horror that we, might, that we might suppose that it is. The Bible treats suffering as the transformational and the maturing process by which we become more and more like our Saviour who suffered unto death. What he does promise is that those who entrust themselves to him, they will one day be fully redeemed from the horrible tyranny of sin and they will be utterly and perfectly renewed with perfect and whole bodies. We don't know exactly what this will be like, but it does give us hope, and we're invited to live in the realities of that future eternity. You might feel like the gender-obsessed ideology is your only hope, but there is a different and far more superior hope, and that is in the God who made you, sent his Son to redeem you from being a slave to sin. And he does this by redeeming us from the curse of sin that is no longer in charge. It no longer has any say of us, over us. And we're invited to live now in the spectacular light of that hope, experiencing the increasing reality of that in our lives. So if you have had experiences of gender dysphoria, or you are experiencing that now, please hear me on this. That must be incredibly difficult for you. You no doubt feel very alone in this and understandably conflicted. And I can, I can't imagine that how difficult this world might be to live in for you. And if that is you, I want to say thank you for giving me your time today. And I can't imagine that even hearing this has been particularly easy. Know this. Your experiences of this do not disqualify you from becoming a child of God. You don't need to get it resolved or fixed before you can come to him. Jesus gets closer to us in the areas of our lives that we are most ashamed, most guilty, and most embarrassed by. This is his grace. Jesus loves you. Regardless of the experiences that you've had, regardless of your sin, Regardless of the ways that you have rejected him, he loves you. Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves those crushed in spirit. Hear me on this too. As a church, we love you. And if you would allow us, we as a church would be honored to walk this journey with you. We believe the better story. And so we want you to know that, that since the ultimate goal of redemption is new and redeemed bodies, that we believe your best bet overall is to live in light of that future etern and eternal and incredibly bright reality. If you will allow us, we would love to walk that path with you. Hebrews 4 offers this incredible promise to us about Jesus. It says, For we do not have a high priest, that's Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, 
Let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. The God that we worship is real and he is merciful and gracious. If you would entrust yourself to him, he will be there for you in, time, in your time of need. That's the promise of Jesus. That's guaranteed. We don't know how he will work, but he is the God who does astonishing things, according to Joel 2. Things that are more marvelous than we could ever dare to hope. And the invitation is to entrust yourself to him. As we finish up, I want to take a few moments to consider a few practical questions going forward. Firstly, how should we as Christians engage this issue? Well, on the public level, we need to approach this as the contentious issue that it is. We need to become good at effectively condemning the gender-obsessed ideology that is leaving so many people in its wake, while at the same time remembering that all people are made in the image of our King, and as such, they are full of dignity and worth and value. We need to resist the urge to join in with the ridicule and the antagonizing that we see in the many corners of popular media. If we ever meet a transgender person, our first response should be care and kindness. We simply don't know the various overlapping, complex and multifaceted things that took place in that person's life to lead them to that conclusion. We should, take, we should also take time to get to know them. Ask them about their story and ask if they can help you understand what being transgender means to them. I don't think our first position ought to be able to, ought to be that we tell them our opinion and our belief about them. This can, and when appropriate, it should be done. But over time, gently, securely, and in the context of a loving friendship. Secondly, a big question. Should we use someone's personal pronouns? This is a very difficult question to navigate. And there are Jesus-loving, Bible-believing, conservative people who would answer this question differently. Let me just state my personal position on this and I'll explain why. I think that for the vast majority of cases, and I'm assuming the vast majority of cases, it's ultimately not wise to use someone's preferred pronouns. Since I believe this to be a psychological disorder, I wouldn't want to participate in any speech or activity that further affirms that disorder. I think this especially applies for children and adolescents and for anyone who it seems that they are, that, and it feels, and this is a case of discernment, that they are pushing that destructive ideology. In other words, if someone's trying to force me to use pronouns and it seems more political than it does personal, then I would be very resistant to that. I think there is an exception to this. And I've been hugely helped by Sam Albury on this matter, and he points uh, to Psalm, sorry, Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5 as a helpful guide. It says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Then verse 5, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. What that's saying is that there are times that you shouldn't join in with a person's unbiblical way of thinking because you might end up adopting that same worldview. However, there are times when joining in, joining in is appropriate to help someone see the errors in their way of thinking. So my exception to this 
would be out of compassion and on a personal level with someone who seems to be sincerely struggling with questions of gender identity and who I believe would grant me the chance to build a relationship with them and to share the gospel with them. The reality is, as soon as someone asks me to use their certain, certain pronouns, one of us is about to become uncomfortable. Who that is will depend entirely on my answer. If I agree, then I will become uncomfortable. And if I disagree, then they will become uncomfortable, and it might go beyond discomfort for them. It could be incredibly painful and distressing for them. And so in that instance, out of compassion, I think that that could be appropriate, but again... Serious, serious wisdom needs to be applied there. Third question, which is uh, it's just kind of a general question, is what can we do as parents? And I, and I say this because um, this, is, uh, this gender-obsessed ideology is making its way into uh, all sorts of popular media and to spaces where our kids are. There are some things that we can be doing as parents that will help our kids navigate issues of sexuality and gender, whether that's for themselves or if they have a friend going through this. I've got four things here. I've actually got a fifth that I've just remembered that I want to add in as well, so I'll chuck that in at the end. Firstly, teach your children about the goodness of God from your Bibles. Read the Bible with your kids. Let them see you reading your Bible. Let God's word have its place over your household as it should. There are lots of fantastic resources to help parents do devotions with their kids. Go to Kurong, buy one. They are so simple to do. Just do it. I failed at this as a father for the first few years. I didn't do a very good job of it. But now, our kids are in the habit of, after breakfast, they get their Bibles, and we start reading through it. And normally that's when the worst behavior comes out. <laughs> and it's tough. It really is tough. Parents, persevere with that. Persevere with that. Secondly, discuss these issues with your children at the right age. Bring it up with them and have honest and frank discussions about it. If you can bring it up first with them, they are far more likely to chat with you about it when it comes up at school. When is the right age? I'm going to leave that to your discernment as a parent. Sometimes it's going to be earlier for some people because of the circumstances in their lives. Sometimes it'll be later. Thirdly, keep them part of a good community of believers. Friendship groups are so important, especially for adolescents. So many young people are influenced down very unhealthy paths of gender discovery by unhelpful, fr- unhe- unhelpful friends and online communities. Um, parents, Prioritize church on Sunday mornings with your kids so that they have a solid group of Christian friends uh, by the time they hit high school. Just keep bringing them to church. And I don't say that because I want to boost numbers or anything like that. I say that because there comes a point when you become a teenager where you, you stop caring what your parents say. You start caring about who your friend, what your friends say. So make sure they've got some good, solid friends around them. Yeah, bring, bring, your kids to, bring your kids to church. Um, we actually are wanting to start a youth group next year. I don't know what that's going to look like, but we want to start a youth group next year. So support that, get behind that, make sure your kids are a part of that. That was the thing that kept me going in my faith in high school. I don't think I would have been a Christian if it wasn't for my Friday night youth group 
and the friends who kept me uh, following Jesus. Fourth thing, keep your kids offline as long as possible. I was having this conversation with a buddy of mine on Thursday night. He was telling me about um, some of the, just the really um, difficult things that their family is walking through at, the t- at that time. And I told him about this, and he said, completely affirm that. No screens in the bedroom. Keep your kids offline as long as possible. Social media is poison. Our kids are safer in the open, open ocean than on TikTok. And, um, yeah, absolutely, keep them off social media as long as you can. It's downright poison. Final question, how, can we be re- how should we be responding as a church? Oh, sorry, coming back, I said there was a fifth thing. The fifth thing was this. Um, and uh, talk to your kids about what has been taught in schools. Uh, we um, had an experience of that at the end of, oh, at this time last year. A group came into our, into our kids' school teaching some things. They had, a, they had a, a set curriculum they were going to teach through, and I was a bit concerned about it, so I contacted them. I contacted the people who were running, contacted the, the uh, presenter, and I spoke to her and had a really great chat, and she assured me of a whole bunch of things that wouldn't be said. And then they were totally said. Keep, um, keep a close eye on what is, at what is happening, um, in what is being taught, from, from, taught to your kids from your teachers. Just... Be wise about that with it. Speak to their teachers. Pray for their teachers. My goodness, our kids' teachers have a very difficult path ahead of them. How should we be responding as a church? There is so much that we can say about this. Uh, Firstly, I think that we should be first in line to offer help and safety for those who are struggling with gender dysphoria. This is going to be difficult and will likely take us to places that we might not have been before. But we should be the hands and feet of Jesus and, and love those who are broken by sin. Secondly, I think we should, we, we should stay informed. Read books that help you navigate these issues. And if reading, uh, sitting down and reading a book puts you to sleep, get them on as audiobooks. In fact, I recommended last week um, uh, Is God Anti-Gay by Sam Albury. And Tim came up to me afterwards and he's like, that's free on Audible right now. So you can listen to that one. If you can listen to it on the fast speed, you can probably listen to it like in two hours. It's a really great book. But just listen to books, read books, stay informed about these things that are really helpful resources around. Thirdly, we need to pray a lot about this. We need to pray a lot about this. We must pray for those who struggle with gender dysphoria. We must pray for those in our church who are doctors and who have to navigate this area of life in very confronting ways. We need to pray for those in our church who are healthcare professionals in any field, whether it are Counselors and psychologists helping people with, uh, with psychological disorders, um, carers, uh, social workers, people who are helping people in, in really difficult ways. We need to pray for, for our school teachers, pray for school principals upon whom there is so much pressure. We need to pray for parents of adolescents who are in the war zones of identity and we must, must, must pray for our church that we will continue to uphold the gospel essential to our lives. And that's the fourth thing. We need to keep the gospel of Jesus Christ central to who we are. The reality is that we have all sinned. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. This is a personally complex and publicly, publicly contentious issue. The call to repent from our sins and to not deny ourselves in light of the love and grace of God and sending his son Jesus Christ is the same for everyone. We all need to repent. We all need to come to Jesus. For each one of us, and for no one more than the other, our greatest problem in our lives is the sin that put Jesus on the cross. 
And that problem was eliminated from our lives when we put our faith in Jesus. In the same way that we heard in that confession earlier, that we don't see the, the reality of our sin until we're looking at Jesus, we need to look at the cross of Jesus Christ and we need to understand that it was our sin that put him there. It was our sin, sin is that serious that it required the Savior, it required the God of the universe to go to the cross and die. That's the cost that it brought up. We need to look at the, at the cross and say, oh, it was, it, it's, it's, I'm, the one, I'm the reason that he's there. And we also need to look at the cross and say, ah, oh, I'm the reason that he's there. He loves me. He loved me enough to die for me, to, to sacrifice his life, to allow his life to come to an end, to pay the penalty for my sin, so that he, in, in his resurrection, would, would triumph over my sin, would triumph over the death that my sin warranted. And that by faith in him, we are made, we are made right with him. We are made right with God. We are made into new creations. And we can serve God in that reality, imperfectly, absolutely. But we can continue to follow God in that, uh, on that trajectory. Trust, um, trust in Jesus. Those who trust in God are made righteous by him are in, and are invited to live and called to live in light of that new identity in him. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples and communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. We provide our podcast free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.